Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It is against you, you only, that I have sinned and have done evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Here he was speaking of his sinfulness even from birth. These are not isolated events. This is something that attests to the whole contours of his life. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. What is he saying here? Lord, when you forgive me of these great sins, I will teach transgressors that this is the God who pardons sin. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. But the bulls will be offered on your altar. Now turn with me, uh, if you would, to Matthew chapter 18 for our New Testament Scripture reading. Here our Savior gives a story that highlights... The very point he is getting at in the fifth petition that we will consider this morning. Matthew chapter 18. We remember the fifth petition. Forgive us our debts even as we have forgiven our debtors and We see that Peter himself approaches Jesus asking this question. We see Matthew 18 and verse 21. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused. He went and he put him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant even as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And now turning with me to Matthew chapter 6 for our sermon text this morning. As we give attention to the fifth petition, I would like us to read uh, the whole of this model prayer yet again. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 15 where our Savior tells us to pray in this manner. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then Jesus adds this, comment in verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Sobering words attending great joy. Let us go before the Lord as we pray that He help us to understand what He is saying. Our gracious God and Fathers, we come to You with broken hearts as we consider our own sins against You and others this week. We pray that You would not only be kind and merciful to us, but that You would so transform our hearts that we would be kind and merciful to those around us as well. Train us to forgive, even as we have been forgiven. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. On the 16th century classic Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan tells a parable of a pilgrim with a heavy burden, who is that, uh, a burden that has been hoisted on his back. Here we find a man who is unable to rid himself of the burden, and he has been given a book, and as he is given this book, he hears the story of impending doom, the destruction of his city and everything he loves. 
And so he flees for safety. And as he flees for safety with this great heavy weight upon his shoulders, his friends mock him. His family is embarrassed by him. Nobody will join him as he seeks to flee the wrath to come, the destruction that is to fall upon the city of man. Nevertheless, as he flees, the burden that weighs upon his shoulders grows heavier and heavier and heavier. Disaster is coming. He does not even know which way to go. And yet, as he flees the city, he encounters different men along the way in this story. Some men who direct him along the proper path, and of course, some who detract him from the pilgrimage he is set to endure. And yet still the burden grows deeper and deeper. And he says he feels as if he is about to be dragged down into the grave. All he wants is to be delivered from this burden and from the coming wrath. Try as he may, he cannot rid himself of his burden, be it by his own good works, be it by his own civility and niceness to others. He finds that the burden remains. There is nothing that can remove this burden, not even his own good deeds. Not even pleasure will bring him relief or comfort from the burden that weighs heavy upon him. And in the midst of all of this, his conscience begins to assault and to assail him for his past sins and that burden that has been placed upon him. And he weeps uncontrollably. And yet he continues upon this upward path to which he has been directed, steep as the climb might be. And along that path, he comes to the cross of Christ. And as he stands before the cross, the burden falls from his shoulders and rolls down the hill, as Bunyan writes, into the empty tomb below. And for the first time in his life, the pilgrim's burdens are no more. With a merry heart, this man says that Christ has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. In other words, by the death and resurrection of Christ, this burden has been lifted, his sins have been forgiven, and it is a burden that has been released freely, graciously apart from his own moral do-goodery. I think we all know something of that kind of burden. It is felt in many ways. Many analogous types of burdens that describe the, the way in which Pilgrim feels. Think of what happens when From an earthly vantage point, the rent is due and you don't have the money to pay. Or you feel the weight of crushing student debt, the accumulating doctor bills, the broken dryer, the busted fridge, the banged up car, where everything breaks down all at once and there are repairs that are needed and necessary and you don't have the means to settle your accounts. The burden of debt becomes real and ghastly. How striking it is that Jesus uses in this fifth petition the metaphor of our sins as a debt, as that heavy burden that rests upon us. Here our Savior teaches us to see sin as that, 
as a moral debt that we owe to God and is a debt we are unable to repay and that debt is soul-crushing. And yet here in this petition, Jesus attests to the great news that comes with the Gospel. The good news that attests the kindness of God who has sent His Son to forgive our debts. But since penalty may no longer burden us, and in doing so, He transforms our own disposition that we would learn to show the same kindness to others. That's what's embedded here in these short words, these few words that are given to us here in the fifth petition. I'd like us to consider two simple matters before us this morning. First, I would like us to consider the matter of forgiven. The matter of being forgiven. And then secondly, the matter of forgiving Two things, forgiven and forgiving. I recall a certain while back, uh, it was tax season. I know how much everybody here loves paying their taxes. Just like every year, I sent my tax stuff to my tax guy to crunch all the numbers for me. And I sent off my taxes in hopes, fingers crossed, that I might actually get something of a return this particular year. A couple days go by, I hear nothing from the tax man. I figure, oh, tax man must be busy. And finally, the tax man, who is a friend of mine, still is, by the way, calls me very quietly. And you know trouble is afoot when the first things that comes out of his lips are, are you sitting down? Oh, no. He says, I've run the numbers over and over again. I've tried everything that I could, and there was a glitch in how you filled your, filed your withholdings last year. And I said, okay, no problem. What's the damage? Big moment of silence. And then he says, $14,000. Let me just say that it was not a good day. I did not happen to have $14,000 sitting on hand. The debt was mine. The mistake was mine. And yet the penalty was greater than I could ever afford to pay. Such is the perfect metaphor for sin, isn't it? It strikes you in the face, the guilt of it one day, not realizing that you've owed it all this time, and then one day it's as if uh, the windows are opened. <laughs> You hear the voice say to you what the real debt that you owe truly is, and you find yourself in a graver position that you have ever realized. Sin has become something of a foreign word in our cultural vocabulary these days. You don't hear the language of sin being touted about in the media. But we do hear a word that is thrown around quite a bit. That is the language of debt keeps popping up a number of ways. How interesting it is here to see that Jesus is teaching us to see sin in one aspect. Using one metaphor, sin is a great debt. We all get what debt is, either as individuals, as homeowners, as taxpayers, as businessmen, or even as a nation. Massive debt can be suffocating. There comes that point for some where the debt is so bad, one is not even able to pay off what he owes, even in terms of its interest alone. 
Right? In older societies, people who were unable to pay their debts were sold into slavery. Sometimes even their whole families were sold into slavery, that their debts that they rightfully owed might be paid off. I'm not simply talking about unjust debts that are unjustly hoisted upon people. I'm talking about legitimate debts that people had gotten themselves into by their own fault, by their own error, by their own miscalculations. Here we find for us a picture of sin, uh, sin as a debt, a deserved debt. This is not an undeserved debt. This is something that we had done. This is a guilt that we had incurred at a spiritual level. See, elsewhere the Bible speaks of sin in a number of other ways. The Bible speaks of sin as a violation of God's law. Just as when one gets caught speeding, every sin incurs a debt. How many of you have you ever gotten a traffic ticket and you're angry about it? But at the end of the day, you really don't have a right to protest because you were the one who had the foot on the pedal and you put that pedal to the metal. See, sin is a moral debt that we owe to God. It is where we become indebted to divine justice. And there's no escaping the legal penalty of such massive debt. There is no such thing as tax evasion, evasion, spiritually speaking, when it comes to God and His settling of accounts on the last day. Elsewhere, the Bible speaks of sin as a paycheck. It's the wages for the things that we have done. Could you imagine at the end of your two-week pay period receiving a check in the mail And rather than saying how much you thought you deserved for the two weeks that you had just worked, rather it says you're hereby summoned to everlasting death. And yet that's what Romans 6 tells us, isn't it? The wages of sin is death. That is the penalty for the debt that we owe to God. Not just one debt for one sin, but countless debts for our countless sins. It's the equivalent, as it were, of asking a waiter to pay off the national debt based off of his daily tips that day. It's not going to happen. There are not enough dishes to wash. There are not enough hours in the day for us to pay off the debt that we had incurred, assuming we could even pay off the debt when the reality is we owe God perfect perpetual and personal obedience every day of our lives. How significant it is then that the fifth petition commands us to pray that our debts would be forgiven. Not simply an encouragement, Jesus says, here's the command, you are to pray like this. He does not say that we are to pray, Lord, give me more time so that I can pay the debts off by myself. It is not calling us to pray, Lord, I wish to sign up for some type of income-driven reduction system in my debt payments. I somehow pay this off over the long haul. Though that would, we would say that would be merciful in some ways. But it's not the fullness of mercy that God is giving to His people here. He is not, we're not simply being called to ask that He would lessen the severity of what we owe. We are called to pray this prayer, Lord, our Heavenly Father, our Father who art in heaven, forgive us our debts. 
wipe them clean. And yet, if we are taught, as the fourth petition insinuates, we are to pray this prayer like this every day. Give us, the, what's the fourth petition? Give us each day, this day, our daily bread. The implication is that we are to pray a prayer like this every day. And the implication is, how often are we called and commanded to pray for the forgiveness of our debts? Every day. How many of us go about thinking, well, the Lord has forgiven me yesterday, but He won't forgive me today? What is it that Jesus has commanded you to, to pray? Every day, pray. Our Father in heaven, forgive us our debts. Why would Jesus command you to pray this if there wasn't the promise attending it that He would actually pardon and forgive? This is not a matter of us going to God trying to strike a plea bargain or some sort of financial compromise. No, the petition outlined before us gives us something far better than we ever could have imagined. That God has come down, He Himself has entered the debtor's prison and says, just ask. Full stop. God has commanded us to pray for forgiveness. Our sinful hearts are such that we need not only to be reminded that we need to be forgiven, Try as we may to convince ourselves that we don't need forgiveness. But here we are reminded that there is a God whose goodness is so great that He commands us to pray that our sinful debts would be pardoned every day. He commands us to pray this daily. Why? Because Jesus is telling us something about the nature of our Heavenly Father. Here is a God who delights to forgive sins daily. It's something we struggle with. It's something Peter himself struggled with as we read in Matthew 18. Lord, how often should I forgive the person who keeps sinning the same sin against me? Just seven times? As if there's a limit? Like, okay, Bob, here, here's, here comes the tough love now. You continue to sin against me. I've, I've, given, I've come up to this point. No more. What's Jesus' response? Not seven times. 77 times. Jesus is not saying that let's just increase the the number by another 70 times. The point that Jesus is making is that every time He comes to you to ask for forgiveness, every time you are to forgive because this is the character of your Father in Heaven. This is the character of what your Father in Heaven has done for you and is doing through through the work of Christ accomplished at the cross who died for our sins and was raised for our justification. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, here is a God who delights to pardon sin daily, who is not only able, but is willing, we might add eagerly willing, to wipe the slate clean, to deliver you from the suffocating burden of sin's moral debt. Because we see in this prayer, we are called to approach this God not simply as judge, but how does the prayer begin? We don't say our judge who art in heaven, though God Himself is the judge of all the earth. But we're called to approach Him as a loving Heavenly Father. Our Father in heaven. I've sinned against you. Again, same sin, different day. Please forgive. And yet Jesus commands us to pray that. 
It's a beckoning to come and pray it so that we might have our hearts tuned to the reality that this is the God who pardons sin. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and kind, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. It's the revelation of God's character to Moses even at Sinai. He does not deal with us as our sins deserve. Far greater than that. As, our, as great as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. And He remembers our sins no more as an act of the will. Not because God has Alzheimer's. He intentionally puts those sins behind us because those sins are reckoned with at the cross of Christ. What a picture of the Gospel. I told you the story a moment ago how quite some time ago I owed quite a bit of money in back taxes. A debt I was not able to pay. I remember calling my folks in a fit of panic just because I didn't know what to do. The folks called the next day and in their kindness they said that they would take that debt right upon themselves. What a picture of the Gospel this is for our Father in Heaven who says simply ask. That's the Gospel. You'll notice here that this is not simply a private prayer as well. It's not simply forgive me my sins. It's forgive us our sins. Here we find Jesus once again transforming our prayers from prayers of accusation against others to prayers of intercession for those around us both for we as the body of Christ and for those who sin against the body of Christ. Here we're called to pray for pardon when we as redeemed people have failed corporately. You recall uh, in Daniel 9, even as Daniel had been exiled as a young boy to Babylon, raised in a foreign land on account of the sin of his own forefathers, the sin of his nation, instead of festering in bitterness and self-righteous contempt, what does he pray O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, it is we who have sinned. It is we who have done wrong and acted and rebelled. We have turned aside from Your commandments and rules. We have not listened to the prophets. And therefore, to us belongs an open shame. For we have rebelled against Him. And then he concludes by saying, O Lord, forgive us. And do not delay. There is no female, there is no male on earth who was not born a debtor to sin. Without exception, save one. The Lord Jesus Christ. We are all born into the same condition where the whole human race owes a massive moral debt. And yet God in His mercy has not only commanded us to pray for daily pardon both as individuals and corporately as the people of God for when we have sinned corporately as a people, but He also impresses upon us the necessity, the necessity of enacting that same pardon to those who have sinned against us in walking in Christ-likeness, in showing that same pardon to those who have sinned against us as our Father in Heaven has shown to us in being proactive and saying, just ask. Leads us to our second point, the matter of forgiving. Right, how interesting it is that this is the only petition in this model prayer where our Savior adds His own personal commentary to it. You see that there in verses 14-15. to 15. Jesus doesn't elaborate on the 
first petition or the second petition or the third petition or the fourth petition or the sixth petition. But he elaborates on this petition. You see that there in verses 14 and 15, that though this pardon is free and full, though this pardon is not merited by our own good deeds, at the same time there does come an attending obligation attached to the full pardon. That you are likewise to forgive just as you yourselves have been forgiven. Herein lies a petition that is in its essence transformative. Jesus is not saying that how well you forgive others becomes the grounds by which you yourself are forgiven. Just the opposite. It is the man who has been forgiven much who truly knows what it means to forgive because he knows the liberating power that comes in the forgiveness of sins. That's why the shorter catechism, which we confessed earlier, speaks of being enabled from the heart to forgive others. This is a work of the Spirit in our hearts. It is an evidence that we truly have been forgiven. The man who has been truly forgiven grasps the weight of his own sin, just like Bunyan's pilgrim. He knows the joy that attends the great debt relief that is given when we look to Christ. And that man wants others to know and to taste that same freedom and joy. So he forgives freely. Calvin, in commenting on this passage, says this, that if the Spirit of God reigns in our hearts, every disposition of ill will and revenge ought to be banished. Vindictiveness and vengeance is not a mark of the people of God. The Lord is actually very specific about that. Vengeance is mine. Thus says the Lord, it is not your prerogative. The Lord will exact retribution on the last day to those who have not repented, but that is not part of our office. That is not part of our job, either individually or as a corporate entity, to show retribution to others who have harmed us, great as that harm might be. Of course, you might protest. As you begin to think of the ways in which someone has sinned against you and you raise your hands and you say, but we are only called to forgive financial debts. Aha, let's stick to the letter of the law, Pastor. We are called to ask, forgive us our debts even as we forgive our debtors. Well, I want you to notice the way in which the Jesus uses different words in verses 14 to 15 as he elaborates. He's not simply talking about forgiving of financial debts if somebody has, you know, broken your fence or actually run over your dog. Jesus says in verse 14 and 15, for if you forgive others their trespasses. Jesus is speaking about all sins. It is a duty that is incumbent upon us to forgive those who have wronged us heinously because we ourselves have wronged heinously the Maker of heaven and earth. There is no right that we have to demand our pound of flesh from anyone. It's a sobering prayer. Kevin DeYoung in his recent 
a book on the Lord's Prayer, which I, I commend to you, says that we are in essence praying this, God, treat me as I treat others. What a wake-up call that is. How do we treat those around us? Do we ask the Lord for forgiveness and then turn around and refuse to show that same pardon? Do we speak of the kindness of God and that then with vitriol and viciousness and maliciousness accuse and gossip and backbite and slander our neighbor and those closest to us? One of my favorite quotes from the Puritans, I believe it was John Flavel, but I tried to find it this week and I, I can't remember where it is. But the Pur- one of the Puritans once wrote that this, that the forgiveness of sins is the Christian's chief happiness. We must not forget that. When we gather for the Lord's Day every Sunday, we are not simply here to get you kind of existentially pumped up uh, for another week. This is not simply, or this is not a, a weekly hoorah Uh, to have you put and slap that smile on your face so you can go out and grit your teeth and you know live up to your full potential that's not the purpose of the church you want to have that go to a football game on friday night and have the cheerleading squad try to pep you up at the local pep rally no here we're taught where, where true and lasting happiness is to be found And that lasting happiness consists in this, that God has forgiven us of all of our sins, and this is where our chief happiness lies. That our sins have truly been forgiven because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the true Christian is a forgiving Christian, not a vindictive one. And so forgiveness has got to be more than a feeling. It still might hurt the way in which people have hurt us might have lasting repercussions and emotional or even physical scars that might last for decades. And yet we are taught to put into practice what it means to forgive as an act of the will. Of course, here we might want to make a careful distinction between forgiveness and forbearance. You read Luke 17, for instance, and the Bible tells us that forgiveness is contingent upon repentance. Jesus says, if they ask for forgiveness, then you forgive. If they repent, then you forgive them. Well, I think our own sinful hearts, especially when we are feeling like we've done pretty good living up to God's moral standard that day, probably because we have not investigated the inner workings of our heart carefully enough that day, But when we're sinned against, how many of us want to say, well, they haven't repented, therefore I have the right to call down fire from heaven upon those who have not asked forgiveness. If they ask forgiveness, that's fine, but until then, let me pray for their destruction. Isn't that what the disciples ask Jesus to do when they go and proclaim the gospel to those in the local town? They refuse to hear the apostles. They kind of make fun of them. The apostles say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven like Elijah? Jesus rebukes them, says, you don't know what you're talking about. See, here's where the rubber meets the road. I think this, in my own personal opinion, is one of the most difficult facets of putting the Christian faith into practice. What do you do when somebody has sinned against you grievously and they will not repent? They refuse to acknowledge that they have done any wrong. And here I think we find 
the model that is set before us, that even though forgiveness in one sense is contingent upon their confession, we are still supposed to retain that posture of a willingness and eagerness to forgive the moment that they do. And maintaining that posture without growing bitter, that person refuses to admit their wrongdoing for days, weeks, months, even years or decades. How do you live in light of that great hurt without getting bitter and having it corrupt your own heart? Once again, we have the model set before us in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it, even as Jesus himself is being nailed to the cross by his enemies, even as he is being falsely accused by those who are longing to see him put to death, what is it that he prays? Father, please forgive them. Here we are trained that even when we have those who have not asked for forgiveness, it does not give us the right to bring them into accusation before the courts of heaven. Here is the perfect opportunity to intercede on their behalf that they too might know the great glory and joy of having their sins forgiven and having them restored into fellowship with the Maker of heaven and earth. I'm not saying you do not call sin, sin. I'm not saying that there aren't times where the church has to reckon and say, this is sin. We are calling you to repent. But even in those acts of serious discipline, it is done with that hope that they would understand that true joy and salvation is found through the confession of sin and repentance because the Lord is willing and abundantly eager to pardon sin. If you just ask, no other strings attached. Here we find the pattern set before us. Simply put, the fifth petition teaches us this. Forgiven people forgive. Such is the character of what we are called to be and do as a corporate body and as individuals and as family members, be it to our own siblings or our own spouses, our own parents, our own children, our own co-workers or neighbors or extended family. We are not to be ones who hold grudges. Even when we look and have to look them in the face and say, you have sinned grievously against me. But the promise of pardon still holds and I am praying for you and I long for us to be reconciled. Only those who have tasted the freedom that comes from the forgiveness of sins will want even their greatest of enemies to come to know that same joy. Because that's what Christ Himself had did for us. So He has done for us, as Paul writes to the church of Rome, that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is faithful and just to pardon our debts because He has sent His Son to pay that debt by dying in our place that we might live in His. That by His sorrow we might find rest, so that by His death we might find life. If only we would but come to God and ask, our Father in heaven, forgive us our debts. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we do come before You this evening thinking of the magnitude of our own sins against others and most significantly against Yourself, we are so grateful that You are the God who pardons sin. We pray that as we hear Your Word and are reminded of Your great love for sinners like us, that we would show, begin to show that same love to those around us that 
as You have transformed our hearts with gratitude through those same acts of forgiveness towards others and forbearance and intercession, You would transform their hearts. We pray that You would use those moments when we are grievously sinned against as opportunities for sharing the Gospel rather than opportunities for festering and wallowing in bitterness and self-righteous pity. We pray that we would look like Your beloved Son who has saved us and has forgiven us. We ask these things in Christ's name.